0: Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the State Virtual Supplemental School, who happens to be located in the um, fabulous town of Missoula, Montana, in western Montana on the University of Montana campus. And joining me tonight, as always, is Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you doing this evening. Good
1: evening, I am happy to be joining you from Oklahoma City, and I'm glad to hear that rain and respite from fires have come, and um, yeah, glad that we can squeeze in. Yeah. Normally we're, I was told by a family, I was on
0: the show, and they're like, what? And
1: I said, yes, just moving nights tonight, so yep. still able to come, so that's good.
0: Well, um, we've broken a record. Uh, We have two pages of links tonight that we have to talk about. There's no way we'll be covering that in the hour. And that's especially impressive in the fact that uh, due to my schedule this week, we had to move 24 hours earlier, so we had less time to collect. Um, for those of you curious, and for those of you that want to know which links we didn't get to tonight, all of our links for every show, uh, now 66 in numbers, located at our website at techsr.com, where you can find um, all past episodes, including video and audio links for those episodes, and the links themselves we talk about. So if you want to go and check out our source material and keep us honest, as we discuss this week's news in, in technology, that's the place to do so. And so, Wes, where would you like to start us off in our many, many, many links tonight?
1: Oh, where do we begin? Well, we've got, as always, some uh, some large sections, but maybe let's just go to uh, something that doesn't have a whole section. Um, I was uh, let, let's go to the to, to some Facebook news. Um, I've got, I guess, we got a couple a couple things, but there's a a ProPublica article from September 14th, 2017. Uh, Facebook enabled advertisers to reach Jew haters, and I've heard a few folks discuss this on, I was listening to the twit podcast and, and some others and it raises this whole issue about whether or not Facebook, you know, as a, is a media company, you know, what responsibility do they have to police and censor monitor, you know, the kinds of things that, that they're publishing. Uh, I think I side with those that say they've, they've got an obligation, you know, they're so, they're so influential at this point. Um, you know it's it's not enough for them to just say, "Oh sorry, we didn't know or um, it's just the algorithm uh, I don't think that they're they're neutral um, so where do you stand on this Jason? and what you do you think it's there's going to be any need for regulation to move Facebook and other companies like Google in this direction as the way we're seeing Europe go or do you think Simply being highlighted in the marketplace and embarrassed is going to release market forces that'll cause them to, you know, figure this out and, and work this out.
0: Well, I think Facebook is in a unique position because I I do think that if action is required. I'm just not sure personally where that action needs to come from. And I do think there are sticky free speech ramifications of any government, state government, federal government stepping in and trying to regulate a platform for speech. Um, now I want to be clear that I don't think that, that, that action are that, that action is not justified, I'm just not sure where that action lies. And I do believe uh, Mr. Zuckerberg and his crew, when they say that they're working on ways to try to, you know, eliminate this. But when I saw this article first, um, I am a Facebook advertiser, full disclosure. I own a small business, which I own a couple of small businesses that, that advertise on Facebook. And one of the things that we have to do there is is target our advertising Um uh, both of the uh, markets I utilize and I've also done some social media for some nonprofit and government entities as well and one of the things that's really critical there is if you want your advertising dollar to stretch you need to be able to aim your ads it's what's it's referred to as the long tail the, there's a very narrow part of the billion Facebook users that would really be interested in my advertising and it doesn't make any sense to send my advertising to people that that wouldn't want to utilize my product or have no interest in my product and so Facebook does provide a very um, robust set of tools for focusing on an audience that I can then advertise to. And what was interesting to me about the ProPublica article, which I saw when it first came out, was that I'm not offered a lot of categories that have to do with my personal businesses that I use to to, uh, run advertising on Facebook. And so it was surprising to me that there were categories available that did truly call out racist rhetoric and speech when I can't find categories to deal with, you know, the hundreds of thousands of high school debaters in the United States, which is one of the small businesses that I help run. And yet you can find, you know, racist rhetoric in which to aim an advertisement to. And so I,
1: I think that's because it's organically generated. Right. So things that people are putting into their profiles I think are are giving those quotes to ab- or there's those categories to advertisers. Yes,
0: to. absolutely true, but it seems to me that for example debaters would be a community um that I would think that Facebook would want to uh, pull out uh, a, logarith- a a logarithmically um to to butcher that poor word but um, as part of that process. And so I was I was also surprised to find out that um, that there didn't seem to be any editorial uh, uh, content here. But now remember that there is an interesting balance here because you may remember from a year or so ago, Facebook was called out because they did have um, human individuals picking out top stories uh, that appeared in the right sidebar in Facebook. And uh, the, the the thought was that those were not based logarithmically, those were instead human controlled and there was a perception. And it's hard to tell uh, personally because I do think that Facebook does spent so much time curating things towards what it thinks I like. So I don't really know when links are automatically generated or not. There's a claim that the human editors did have a strong liberal bias towards them And and prominent conservatives and and so-called fringe or alt-right groups have complained that Facebook's Facebook's news team did seem to have at least a neutral um, or a liberal bias to them, which eliminated many of the stories of, of those constituencies off that list. And so there's a balance there. I just don't know what it is. And I do think... Um you know the government teacher in me, government student in me, the political science in me scientist in me says that I think we'd have a hard time finding a meaningful set of regulations. So when Zuckerberg and his crew say that they're working on this, whatever that means, I hope that means they're going to figure out a way to uh, address this problem as to not create a massive platform for targeting you know trolls wherever they live.
1: And I'd say there's just a, a huge continuing and ongoing need for us to have um, a free and open press that can yes. criticize and point these things out and serve as watchdogs. Uh, there's an important role for, for us as citizens to support organizations and entities that are going to attempt to highlight these things and, you know, not not just, um, you know, turn a, turn a blind eye because, uh, you know, there were – I don't think there's anybody out there today who is going to definitively say, I can say without a doubt, you know, this was the impact, for instance, in the, in the presidential election of this. But we're, we're seeing a lot, of, I mean, I amidst mean, headlines of hurricanes and all other kinds of things, you know, we're, we're seeing headlines about <clears throat> Mueller's work and, and in, you know, continuing investigation of the special counsel into the Russian election. Uh, we've got some other articles that we may talk about as far as implications for balloting and, uh, and elections and democracy. So, you know, we have roles to play. Journalists have roles to play. And as educators, we've got important roles to play with students as we try to encourage them to be uh, critical consumers of information and also, you know, critical publishers and sharers, as we all have the chance to do today.
0: Absolutely. So I was also surprised to find out that Hungarian sausage was a category you could advertise to on Facebook. And for no other reason than I really like Hungarian sausage. So I plan on liking that on Facebook, hoping that Hungarian sausage advertisers will find me.
1: Well, I'll say this, too. There's some things that I've wondered. It's so cutting edge. You're like, this isn't in the curriculum. But let, if you're going to teach something, touching on social media, uh, touching on you know anything that would be a lead-in to marketing, I, I think it's very – I opening to kind of have the seat of the advertiser. I've only done yes. a little bit of Facebook advertising, but to see the keys to the kingdom, so to speak that they give you about how you can target and wondering, you know, what the, what the boundaries are of that. Um, it's, it's, it's really staggering. Right. Um, and it really, it really is a different day that we have, you know, where not only can everyone be a publisher, but everyone, you know, can, can be an advertiser. Um, I think it's powerful and liberating, but it's also, you know, just like any other technology, the whole Spider-Man thing, you know, great, great power has great responsibility um, in unthought of power to target individuals if we choose to become an advertiser on Facebook.
0: Right. One other thought about that. I think I may have mentioned this in an earlier episode, but as part of 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 social media advertising for one of my small businesses, uh, Facebook has a, a product now called the Facebook Pixel. Um, the Pixel is a little snippet of code that you can put on a website, and what it does is that it it targets your users and connects back with them if they also happen to be logged in at Facebook at the same time. And it does that not necessarily to aim advertising at them later, although clearly that happens, right? Because when I go to Amazon... And I then go to Facebook, then Amazon advertisements on Facebook are based on my, my my search history. So there's obviously some communication there between Amazon and Facebook. But what's really interesting to me is that I've been able to take that pixel, place that snippet of code um, on my online website where I sell um, one of the products I'm involved in as, as part of my small business and then I'm able after one month to go back in and create an audience that's based on the people that actually visit my website. Now, as an advertiser, that's extremely powerful to me because I can then target a group without exactly knowing who my group is, right? Like I, I, I'm i basing it off of who actually ends up on my website, not who I, I can guess ends up on my website. But that also means that you may or may not understand that by being logged into Facebook and Facebook having a massive advertising, um reach out in the world, you're probably being tracked in ways you may not even really understand. And again, I'm comfortable with that only because they're well, I'm comfortable with that because I understand the internet runs on advertising, right? That in a world where the internet is largely free, you which I put marks, in The yeah. internet is free and you're <laughs> the product. Facebook exactly. brings it all home. Exactly, right? And you know, that's creepy. But at the same time, you know, I understand the interchange there. I understand that that these services cost money both in the human time and and, and the the place to host them. So there has to be something there if you're not paying for it. I dropped the link into the chat. And
1: thank you, uh, Peggy George, for joining us live and also into the show notes. Uh, And the, the link is getting started with the Facebook pixel. And this is Facebook developer information. And I do think this is a huge challenge that we have with not just students, but everyone to understand we are the product. And if we are the product being sold, you know, are we comfortable with, with everything that is being sold about us and the transparency that can be provided with some of the tools that we've referenced before, you know, that note to self and other podcasts have highlighted, you know, which kind of show, here's our best guess about all the things Facebook thinks it knows about you. And What you click on, yes or no, Facebook is much more aggressive and has been, I've noticed in the past few months or past year, you know, when you are somewhere saying, are you recommending this place? Are you, do you like this place? You know, it desperately wants you to create your profile and take an active step to say, yes, I like this. And if you say, for instance, you know, I like Chick-fil-A and I go to church here and I I don't know, whatever kinds of places you frequent, it's going to aggregate you. This is big data. And so, yes, the Internet is driven by marketing and advertising, but there are some important personal decisions we can make about what we choose to share and how we share them. Simply using the platform is a decision and a choice, but how much information you're going to give to the machine and then you know simply having awareness of it Um, I don't know. I think a lot of people are asleep at the wheel as Facebook users, not recognizing that, uh, you know, we've we've had very powerful tools built that allow for this kinds of targeted advertising and that can allow for manipulation. And the critics and cynics among us would say, you know, allowed an election to be thrown and allowed people to be, you know, in, in the highest office of the land that wouldn't have been there otherwise, you know, had there not been. You know, lots of people, and I think it's more than $100,000. That was a number being kicked around, you know. Oops. I mean, we're talking about quite a bit of money, so. Right. All right. Well, hey, where should we go next? We've got some other other big topics to tackle. Do you want to pick on one of the big ones?
0: Um, actually, no. I want to pick on a little one quickly because like, just because it's really exciting and it's really good news. Um, the Verge reported today that T-Mobile... The provider for me, the provider for Wes and his family, um, T-Mobile, has announced that their upper cap for unlimited data has increased from 32 gigs to 50 gigs, and to give you a very brief notion of what unlimited means, um, T-Mobile was, was the first provider to offer unlimited data, and unlimited data means, uh, and, and this is true of all the major providers, that you can have as much 4G or 4G LTE data as you want up until a limit, and at that point, once you hit that limit during any given month, your data is deprioritized Um, on busy cell towers. So if you're sitting in traffic, for example, and there's a thousand other cars that are also streaming maps or radio or um, other data to your phone and you happen to be over your limit for that month, you would kick back to, in some cases, 3G data, in other cases, 2G data, and then Heavens forbid you end up on the edge network, which you know basically means you could walk it there faster, right?
1: GPRS. I've even seen that. You know, oof, which, oof. I don't think you get bumped to that voluntarily, but in very no, long <laughs> <without good> coverage,
0: <laughs> you know, no, yeah, no one chooses
1: GPRS.
0: Right, right. And so what's exciting about that is that T-Mobile um you know, first of all, um they have you know wonderfully inexpensive plans and um you know, I I've really enjoyed having unlimited data I've been a T-Mobile customer since January now, but um I have been pretty hardcore in in utilizing my phone both as a mobile hotspot Um, I used to have a a mobile hotspot provided for me on the Verizon network at work, and we've uh, cut that expense back because I now have the opportunity to use my phone for that. But there's been no month where I've exceeded 18 gigs as a heavy user on that network, and um, I've never seen the cap. And now the cap has gone from 32 gigs, which is huge, to 50 gigs for an individual user in a single month. And honestly, like unless I was using this as my sole means of utilizing the Internet, I can't even imagine using 50 gigs in one month. So Wes, I know you've had uh, access to unlimited data a little longer than I have. So have you ever hit the 50 gig level? No, we have not
1: uh we've talked about on the show too the interesting contrast between what's happening with mobile data caps and you know broadband home residential caps and the sort of threat that those are going to be enforced but um the only place I've actually hit them i have i have hit them uh with a t t when when I was tethering and you know hit this ridiculous five um, five gig or was it was it less than that it was you know. It was just up to a, up to a, up to a small amount. And, and I don't know, did you notice in the fine print, Jason, what does it say for tethering?
0: Um, I don't think tethering's impacted if you're on the T-Mobile, if you're on the T-Mobile one for work or one international or whatever it is, which I am. And so I get unlimited tethering. So I don't know what that means for the regular account. Wow. Yeah, that's great.
1: Uh, I yeah. think it's... Speaks to the value of competition, right? Glad to have T-Mobile out there. Glad to have other competitors here. We really are not served well generally with monopolistic choices, and we wouldn't have a company, you know, offering this kind of thing if if they weren't trying to compete and differentiate themselves in the marketplace, which monopoly and oligopoly players don't
0: have to do. And I had a little program note here, and I'll, um, I'll I'll dig up this link at some point and throw it in. But uh, Senator John Tester, who's one of the two senators from from the state of Montana, recently sent a letter to Verizon because Verizon had announced to several eastern Montana rural customers that they were essentially going to have their account shut off because they they had exceeded the expected amount of data used in an unlimited data plan and. He was concerned because it, it, if team, or I'm sorry, if Verizon is going to be kicking off users that use a lot of data in remote areas, that really does create a public safety risk and also, um, uh, uh, a lack of, of, of access to communication tools for rural Americans, particularly in places like Eastern Montana. But it is interesting. You mentioned that contrast that, um, you know, that's one of the things I felt when I was on Verizon was that, that I was always kind of having a finger wagged at me, um, you know, telling me not to use data and T-Mobile seems to almost be egging me on, asking me to play chicken with the data cap, and, you know, the one or two months when I actually tried, I couldn't even get to 32 gigs, let alone 50, and that's a month where I was, you know, streaming Netflix on the way to work and back on the bus, um, I was traveling and utilized that as my main means of internet, I know this from my own experience that, you know, I work all day in, in an online environment because I work for a digital school. And when I have had no home internet access and been stuck on on a um, on a uh, hotspot, like that one day of work is about a gig, maybe a gig a half on a heavy day, which means 50. Like I can use it for the primary internet for work. Like it's, it's my blowing to me towards that point. So, you know, hats off to T-Mobile and I'm glad that I'm a, a T-Mobile customer.
1: Absolutely. And I did find the link on Senator Tester's website. So I dropped that into Thank the chat and the, the page. Tester demands answers from Verizon after Montanans received termination letters. There's a very also important advocacy issue here in terms of universal service. Yes. Because we have companies like Verizon uh, attempting to tell the FCC, hey, you know, people just need cellular. They, they don't need broadband. Um, we don't need to play, you know, provide plain old telephone service. It's, it's enough for them just to have a cellular signal. And what's, well, why we need disruption like T-Mobile increasing the data caps is when they say things like, you know, three megabits uh, per second, five megabits per second is sufficient for high speed, you know, and basically trying to set a very low bar for how fast they're going to guarantee service and, you know, impacting universal service. That, that's a big deal yes. in the United States. The climate at the FCC, uh, has changed. And so glad, glad to hear that from T-Mobile and, uh, I, I think we, we exchanged a couple links are not in the show, but <clears throat> T-Mobile has just bought a lot of additional frequency bandwidth in the United States and the iPhone 8 and iPhone 10. We may have included this last week. Did we include the link last week? Uh, they don't, they, they don't, um, yet have the capability with their modems to, you know, be able to utilize that, but I right. think that's gonna be something that we're going to see, um, you know, working its way out. I think they're going to figure out how to get those phones on the, on the new networks. So. Yeah,
0: absolutely true. Okay. Where All right. Start? Can we talk,
1: let's talk hacks a little bit. So uh, we, 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 had, we, this is a record by the way of, of most number of links. So if, if we do a, a speed round, that, that is fine. But the first one I, I put in here was uh bamboozled. Why the Equifax hack is a really, really big deal. And this is from, NJ.com, you know, your favorite and, and most uh, widely recognized source of information and news possible. Actually, I've never, never heard of them before, but September 14th, 2017. And um, this is something I have not yet emailed our faculty and staff about at school, but I really I really need to uh, because this is an unprecedented data breach. Um, they go through some of the concerns about this, for instance, how the website that Equifax set up, EquifaxSecurity2017.com, you know, looked like an email phishing domain. It's not the official domain yeah. of the site. And you're like, okay, do I really want to put my information here? You know, and then the problems with they have their little clause that if you signed up for service that, you know, maybe you were going to be saying you wouldn't participate in a class action lawsuit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think just <laughs> – we won't go down a rabbit hole about climate change, but just as we're seeing hurricanes in the Caribbean, you know, a new normal perhaps happened here. And I remember, what, five or seven years ago, we had like five hurricanes hit Miami or no, not all Miami, but they hit Florida, and we thought, oh, my gosh, it's just crazy. I mean, I don't know whether this hurricane season will be – We'll be replicated again, but it, it appears that there's a new normal there. There is a new normal with respect to hacking. We've talked about this on the show a lot. And <clears throat> I I think – Peggy wasn't in our in her, uh, chat room last time, and so I'd be curious what her thoughts are and anybody else who uh, is joining us. I'm ready to make the step of freezing credit. And so what, what everyone needs to do is – First off, recognize the site that they set up, even this points out, even when they were putting in fake credentials, it was saying, oh, you're affected. Oh, you're affected. So, you know, perhaps this website was just trying to to make everybody think that you needed to sign up for a service with Equifax, which was going to be free for a little while, and, and then you were going to pay for. But monitoring your credit reports, taking a look at all of your credit cards and looking for charges, <clears throat> this this hack Didn't just give, you know, a a password that you've used on a few websites, or maybe it's the one you use on all the sites, but we're talking about your social, your um, driver's license, you know, your birthday, all of these things that are going to to be essential to obtain uh, additional credit. And so... um, looking for anything that's suspicious and considering that step of, you know, freezing your credit. I think Jason had put in a good link about how difficult it was. There was, a I think, a CNN or some other Forbes or somebody, a news person, who was trying to do that. And it was really hard because Equifax wasn't providing um, swift online means to get your credit frozen. And even when you tried to call, they said, you know, sorry, call back later. Um, So, the second link that's in there is credit freeze information by state, by TransUnion. And I went ahead and looked up Oklahoma. They do, these companies charge when you want to do something like freeze your, your, your uh, credit. In Oklahoma, if you are the victim of identity theft, then you are able to do all of these things for free, whether you want to add, lift, or remove a credit freeze. And let's see, Montana, yeah, similarly, is free if you can prove that you are a victim. <clears throat> but if you're not, you know, it's going to be $3 to add, $3 to to uh, remove yourself from the freeze. So, Jason, are you giving any advice today regarding the Equifax hack and freezing credit?
0: Yeah, I'm well, first, I've had a couple people ping me on this, and to be clear, I am included in the data theft pile. My wife is not. Uh, We actually were were discussing this via texting today. I think we're going to put a freeze on my credit in order to make sure that nothing gets pinged there. and she doesn't feel the need to for, for good reason because her, hers wasn't impacted. But the thing that's really terrible about this is that, I mean, I've, I've had stuff stolen from websites before. I mean, my credit card has been canceled, you know, a dozen times in the last five years because apparently my uh, my credit card number had been stolen by a merchant uh or in a merchant account that works with uh, my Bank of America card, and so that's been an annoyance. But the bottom line is, is that the Equifax uh, data dump, Includes a ton of information that that you would never find stored in one location, right social security numbers and its credit card numbers and its personal information much much of which can be able to draw enough information about you to really do some damage and the fact that they were apparently very sloppy. Uh, technological security systems uh, in a group that is so trusted uh, for, for data and, and financial information is, is is pretty sad. But I guess my, my big piece of advice, and I've, I've seen this in a number of websites now, there are lots of places to get free credit reports. By the way, going to freecreditreport.com is not one of them. Uh, one piece of advice I can give is that freecreditreport.com is a pay-for service, whereas I believe it's annualcreditreport.com is the free site maintained by the three credit where you can get a new report, I think it's every three to four months from one of one of the major uh, credit re- reporting groups. But if you've never done this before, then on um, keep a copy of your or get a copy for credit report today and then three months from now, get another one and see if anything has appeared on there that doesn't belong there, especially if you're a part of this this Equifax dump and then do something about that. Right. Like there's there's uh, uh, many things you can do um, to uh, to stop that and go in and fish it out once the day or once you've been attacked. It, it's pretty hard to clean up. So I think more proactive steps are better. But I can tell you me personally, I'm probably going to freeze my credit.
1: Couple other articles under here. Uh, Avast reckons CC Cleaner malware infected 2.27 million users. This is from TechCrunch on September the 18th. And so if you have used, are using Windows machines, and have in the last 20 years, uh, or help people who do, you know, you've probably been on the search for malware cleanup software, yep. both commercially available and free. And so CC Cleaner is one of these programs that a lot of people have downloaded and utilized. And so hackers were smart enough to you know, have an injection hack that if people were trying to clean with this free tool, they were actually giving themselves malware and compromising their systems. So yep. this has been revealed and... I guess what does this point out, Jason? What are, what should people conclude from this
0: article? Well, first I I should say um, I, <laughs> I I use CC Cleaner. Um, I have a couple of times or use it. It's a standard install for me on Windows machines. What I like about it is that it goes in and clears out caches um, and can save valuable disk space, um, especially when you have a small SSD drive, which I have had on a number of Windows laptops. Um, it's a great way to keep junk from 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 uh, building up um it's it's a company and and a product I trust um and I was a little shocked to see this when I spotted it yesterday in um uh, uh, just a just a google news briefing and the bottom line is is that it my understanding of the articles is that the company doesn't believe that the information or that the the piece of malware was actually activated at any point, like no one was impacted directly by this malware. so that's good news. but the bad news is is that this company um, i mean they they attacked where the the software was hosted and injected malware into legitimate copies of the software and then you would have received the malware when getting regular updates and if 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 uh, there's no other um fact of 2017 that's true it's that our systems are now largely set up to automatically accept updates of software uh, everywhere from the operating system to individual applications, oftentimes without direct um, intervention on behalf of the user. And it's it's a little scary that, you know, bad actors are engaging in this kind of behavior, uh, utilizing processes that you don't even have to click on a bad link to get the malware on your computer. It's just going to sneak onto there if, for whatever reason, it's able to be inserted into that software. So um, I find that to be Scary, and um, you know, I could see a scenario where if you could find the right piece of software that's getting updated in that way in sensitive locations, hospitals, schools, of financial institutions, it could create a really big mess really quickly. So I'm hoping what this does is that it appears there's going to be no lasting impact from this. Although I'm assuming um, C Cleaner will. Uh, decrease its its ultimate uh, market penetration for cleanup applications that are out there. That's sad for that particular company, but I'm hoping this highlights some awareness of this particular issue and starts to build both cognizant of it and and tools for for managing and checking these things.
1: And I think it points out the need to be able to wipe your system clean uh, on an, at an enterprise level, at your school, at your place of work, and at home. You know, being able to back up data and then wipe everything out, having a fresh version of the operating system, you know, is generally a best practice now, I think, yep. rather than trying to say, wow, let me try to run however many programs I can figure out that I either download for free or that I pay for that are going to clean these kinds of things up. And so I think we're going to continue to see the ongoing evolution of operating systems that, that make that even easier uh, again at school this week, I was i you know the ease with which Chrome uh, lets us do all kinds of things, and so hopefully we 're going to see i don 't know that we have this in the show, but Microsoft continue to to move forward and, and Apple as well with operating systems making them um, you know for users uh more secure and then allowing for you know kind of the the reformatting and and the wipe out of the of the drive
0: yep absolutely.
1: Next article in that sequence is from actually Google on September 8th. Seven ways admins can help secure accounts against phishing in G Suite. And as most of our viewers are probably aware, phishing with a P, P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G is when folks are going, to, you know, malicious hackers, malicious folks are going to try to get you to click on something and oftentimes put in your credentials that are going to then give away the keys to the kingdom, to your Google account, to your online banking site, you know, whatever it is. And whereas we have sometimes as, as this week articles that about, you know, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I mean, this is seven concrete things that administrators of Google – apps for education, you know, G suite uh, domains can do. And I was thrilled to read this because I'm actually going to reference this in an upcoming email to our faculty and staff. Recommendation number one, which we have started to do and are requiring everyone to do by December is enforcing two step verification. So that means you're going to have to have your phone or another device that, you verify your your identity with. Um, Number two is uh, one of my geeks of the week. It's a free Chrome extension called Password Alert. And so if you're using the Chrome browser, then this will alert you if you're being asked to put in your credentials on a site for Google that is not Google. And this is something I've heard several different independent school tech directors talk about where we've had targeted attacks where an email is sent from someone. It looks like it's a shared Google document. You click on it. It asks you to log in, and you might think that you're logging into Google, but what you're doing instead is logging into their website. So this is an extension that's free to run that w- you can actually enforce this. And so I haven't done this at school yet, but anticipate probably doing it um, you know, in, in the next week or so. And that means that you will push that to all of your devices. It's a little different. It'll work on a Chromebook and, and just push it and everyone's got it. But when people are using a Windows or a Mac laptop, I don't think the enforcement works quite the same. But you can certainly send that out to people, recommend it, and they can install it. Um, Allow trusted apps to access your data. Uh, I don't know if we're going to go to this step. We've mentioned this before on the show, but not in great depth. But there's something called OAuth. O A U T H, and that's where you say I'm going to use my Google credentials to log in over here. And there's a risk that you are, you know, putting yourself up. You're, you're trusting that website by giving your credentials and and using OAuth. And so you could whitelist just certain sites, basically that you would authorize, and then perhaps be protecting your users a little bit more. Um, there's a few the 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 DMARC policy. I'm, I don't think we're going to do that, but this is really interesting for third-party email. Uh, disabling third-party email, we have asked our users to no longer run like the Apple Mail client, is because when you run a a POP or IMAP third-party email program, it will download a lot of stuff to your local drive to include all of these attachments. And we were finding for our Mac users, it wasn't every day, but maybe once a week or so, you know, with a, a user base of about 175, we would have somebody who would would get a identified malware virus. And sometimes it was just an attachment that that was out in their email, but right. it wasn't something that was really affecting their machine. And that was something at a cybersecurity workshop I attended in April out in California that they recommended and schools were doing was just saying, hey, everybody use the web-based um, you know, method of getting to your Gmail. We don't want you to use third-party clients. So it's saying if folks want to use a Google tool, they have built-in phishing and other kinds of security protection, <clears throat> but that, you know, that would crimp some people's style if they're using, you know, third-party clients on their phones. Um, or on their laptops to do that um, so and then just encouraging people to to pay attention to uh, to warnings um, I thought this was a great article and if anybody who's a, a g suite admin, I think should take a look at that and especially take a look at two step if you're not enforcing that yet, but there's a host of of other good tools and resources there um, you all are a g suite school, so any of this stuff uh, things that you all are already
0: doing or but, yeah. yeah, we we use two-factor authentication for administrators only. Let me ask you this question, Wes, cuz this is an interesting topic to me. Um I I I'm I'm all in on two-factor author, uh, authentication. I now use it in every account that I can, and I was a little spooked by the Equifax dump, and then I had a couple of funky things happen about a month or so ago where my next, my Netflix account um, was compromised, and I think I know what happened. I, I had been in a, a hotel in Idaho, um, and uh, there for a couple of days doing a training. And the first night there, um, I need some background noise, so instead of doing what I usually would do, which would be to set up a complicated personalized uh, Chromecast in the hotel room, da 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 da. Let's ignore the nerdiness of that for just a second. What I had done is, is I, I actually, they, they had Netflix integrate in the TV, and so I signed into my account and, and called it good, and I watched a couple of things, and it was fine, and, and it, it, uh, seemed to be a little faster than the wireless, so I, I was able to, to take advantage of that, and, Um, I, when I, when my account was compromised and someone had taken over the account and then changed the email to another email address and I was able to call Netflix and they fixed it in about 35 seconds and said that the likely scenario was that they said, we've seen this a lot in the last six months. And they said it was because I had entered my username and password in a, in a, a a device. Uh, they said it's like a TV and like, if you've been traveling lately, were you at a hotel, And I assumed that the hotel was going to wipe that information when I was done, but they said in a lot of cases they don't. And so people will go in and change your email in the account and call it good. And a couple other little things that that had happened that were probably nothing, but they they gave me the the heebie-jeebies. And so I decided to go all in on two-factor authentication. So the question I have for you, Wes, is that, Um, First, have you introduced this to your faculty at all? Um, And are you concerned that you're going to get a lot of pushback from the convenience or inconvenience of that?
1: Yes, so we've introduced it as a phase program, and this summer, as we refreshed laptops for our elementary teachers and then starting back to school for our middle school teachers, we required everybody to have what we told them was about a 30-minute sit-down where we went through several different security procedures and let them know that this was optional now but would be required by December, but we'd be happy to help them set that up. And I think in every case, they went ahead and, and let us help them set that up. Um, you know, explained why this is important, why we recommend doing this everywhere they can, and people w- have been very receptive to that. We also help them with password manager, uh, did, we last pass, we're not managing that, we're not mandating it, but, it is such a universal pain point for people with passwords that folks were very, very happy to get that assistance and, and those recommendations. Um, and the last thing we just did, you know, had to do with uh, passwords on your machine, making sure that you had a password activated after a certain amount of in- inactivity and then showing them how to create a hot corner, you know, so they're stepping away from their computer. They could just go ahead and have their screen lock and, you know, Students or, or who, parents or whoever, we, we haven't had a security incident with that, but somebody couldn't just step up to your machine, you know, move your mouse and, and access your email to, to read what was going on. So we haven't had pushback on that yet. However, I'll say that, you know, as we hear near the end of, of September, October, um, and we're not refreshing laptops uh we're on a 5 year cycle so you know not everyone's getting a new new computer uh we're going to need to look at the follow up for individuals because i really think that one on one you know sit down was great it's the it's the longest time of one on one you know quote unquote training that we've had with users since i've been the technology director for 2 years so um, i i think there probably are a few folks with their cell phones who just may not be you know, using them every day, and I don't know that we've got anybody who's not on a smartphone. But I've been pleasantly surprised that we didn't get a pushback.
0: That's great to hear, and I, I think we're we're probably going to move to all two-factor authentication for all adult users sometime in the next year. Um, and one of the things that, that is also true is I, you know, I, I move from desktop to laptop, you know, like some people um you know, change silverware silverware from meal to meal, right? Like I have a lot of a lot of access to a lot of machines, I like to move around, I like to use different platforms, and I found it to be fine, right? Like as long as I have my phone with me, which I do ninety nine point nine percent of the time, I'm I'm good to go. So I'll be curious to hear your experience and we'll we'll follow. I I think two factor authentication is important to us.
1: And I think on the note of passwords, you know, I'm using um, a third 30- 30 character random password on most sites today that's different and unique that is created by one password or LastPass. however for your Google account I found you because of what you just said logging in on different devices and whatnot you know I, I need to have something that's a little bit easier for me to be able to type I'm still using something longer than I had been before and it's unique but um, you know the research that we've cited before on the show, Talks about how how it's it's more important to use longer passwords and different passwords than it is to change your password frequently. And so, if your organization is still requiring you to change your password every three months, six months, something like that, uh, you can go back in our show notes and look at the I think it, is it the NAST uh, NAST recommendations for passwords and pass that along to your IT manager because. You should not be required to change your password every three months. The organization does that. They're actually reducing the level of security, at, you know, for users and doing you know, two-step as well as some other things like encouraging unique passwords, use of password managers, and other password policy. We got about 15 minutes left. Um, I'll just do a shout out to these last two. Uh, I think you put me onto this, Jason, the hackable podcast by McAfee. I've been uh, taking in their sessions. It's really, really well done. And of course they do mention, hey, and by the way, you know, you want to run, you know, anti malware, uh, you know, phishing and, and antivirus protection, but it's not a hard sell for McAfee. The last one I listened to <clears throat> was episode three locked out, which was about ransomware and was just really, really well done. Um, and then I think you dropped that last link in about paper ballots from USA Today on September 19th. Paper ballots are back in vogue thanks to Russian hacking fears. And that article actually points out the impact of a hackathon, or this may have been at Black Hat or DEF CON, one of the Las Vegas conferences, where they set up all these different voting machines. And, you know, because they're running things like Windows XP and these other you know, systems that are very vulnerable to attack, you know, it's just only a matter of minutes before they were able to compromise things and, you know, and dramatically scare officials to the point where they realize, hey, I think Georgia was one of these states. We can't verify the validity of our election if if we're using these tools. So I actually think this is, this is great. Democracy is important. We need to be able to uh, verify the validity of election results. Perhaps these digital tools are going to advance to the point where, you know, they can be trusted. But right now, the antiquated election computer systems that many states are running are just kind of a recipe for disaster. And so going back to the old school, you don't hear me say going back to paper is a good thing in many cases. But I think that's my opinion
0: here. Yep, absolutely so. And I am glad that, you know, you you don't want tragedy to create Discussions like this, but uh, I'm glad that these are being debated. And I've always been uncomfortable with electronic voting, to be honest. And I, I'm glad to hear that at the minimum, people are talking about a paper trail. But if not, going back to paper ballots, I think it's a very important piece.
1: Well, where would you like to go next?
0: Um, well, you want to do a quick roundup of? I know we 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 talked a lot about Apple last week. Um, maybe ignoring the phones for the week. Um, Let's talk about iOS 11 for a second. Um, iOS 11 available now. Um, There's a link from Wired that talks about if you're not being offered the update yet, how you can go in and update your phone or iPad to iOS 11. I guess I'll start with Wes. Have you updated any device to iOS 11 yet?
1: No. um, I like that uh, Wired article that you included uh, which talks? Oh no! I guess it's the Mac Rumors article. Um, I may have put that one in. PSA: Your older 32-bit apps won't launch after installing iOS 11. I've been seeing these warnings on a few apps that I really like, and so this is a, a case where it's important to have eyes open and think about what apps you're using a lot and whether or not those apps have been updated and there's a replacement app. Uh, one of the ones that fits into that category for me was called Pro HDR. Use it all the time, and uh, just hadn't realized it, but the new version is Pro HDRX, and so it's a, a replacement app. But I've found generally, with respect to both iOS and, OS and Mac OS updates, it's best not to be a bleeding edge early adopter. It usually breaks printers at our school, um, so we are going to need to do testing. We will do testing when High Sierra comes out like maybe later this week or next week, but I have not. And will you know, I generally think, and this is an important thing about what you advise people. Cause we don't want, I mean, we've got, we have folks running El Capitan, right? Which is like three or four OSs back. And that's, not as bad as running Windows XP, but you know, it's, it's a much older operating system. We don't want to scare people away from updates or for people to think it's so cumbersome that, you know, I have to just keep putting it off, keep putting it off. But I will, I generally wait for a couple weeks.
0: How about you? Uh- I have updated my iPad to, I, to iOS 11 if for no other reason because it's not a critical piece of, of hardware for me. It's really a media consumption device, but so far I'm pretty impressed with it. It's a very nice operating system. Um, this is the la- apparently the last time I'll be receiving a major update because I have an iPad Air. I'm sorry, an iPad Mini 2, which is what I'm I, is my my actually my single iOS device, and um, the iPad Mini One is not being updated. Um, to the latest, and so that tells me that, that maybe next year, if, if there's an iOS 12, I won't be updated to that, but so far so good. I find that the, um, the, the new, um, uh, access to, to, uh, controls is, is a lot nicer. I'm having to get used to, um, a different version of a menu bar at the bottom, but, uh, those are, you know, mini things, and so far so good. I will give this piece of advice, um, that maybe uh, you may agree with me, Wes, or not, but, um, especially with non-critical items like my iPad, um, the first thing I did after upgrading to iOS 11 was I wiped my my iPad and started over again. Whenever I have a major update, I prefer to start with a fresh OS and then, you know, restore from a a backup so I can get the apps that I had before as opposed to going with, with the updated version. And that's that's also true of um when I when I will update to high Sierra in a few weeks. But I I go bleeding edge um only because if my computer dies, then I just grab the one next to it. So since I'm you know a nerd with you know variety of options at any given time to access the internet, um it's not a big deal for me. But I think your advice is very sound. A lot of 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 all in Mac people, um unless they have a a test machine or an older machine they can they can try it on first, wait around upgrade.
1: We've heard Ben Wilcoff, who's been on the show before, talk about what a game changer it is. This, I think, sounds like the most substantial user experience update to the, the iOS platform, perhaps ever. You know, yep. the, the ways in which multi, um, what multitasking and you know being able to drag and drop and file manager and and all of those kinds of things.
0: Yep. And then I also note too that uh, apparently there's an an update available today on TV OS, which runs the Apple TV, and it does bring some nice features, um, including uh, the ability to stream to AirPods, the special Appleized Bluetooth headsets. Um, They're uh, utilizing what's referred to as AirPlay 2, which is the new standard uh, for AirPlay that was announced, that allow you to utilize multiple speakers at once, and then the TV app is updated. Um, and then also apparently Prime Video is now available. Nope, 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 nope. It's coming soon again, according well, we to this article.
1: We still don't have a date for that. That was, I was looking for that in the announcement so that we didn't have to mirror our, our iOS devices to Apple TV to, to play Amazon video. Still coming.
0: Yep. And then will, also very interestingly, you can now, um, apparently stream from tvOS to a Mac which I'm not entirely sure what I would do with that. Like you can stream from your Apple TV to another device. Like if you want to send, I guess, Netflix or something to a second monitor your screen. I don't, um, um, I don't exactly know what that means, but it seems like it could be kind of interesting.
1: Hmm. Um, I will do a quick shout out on the iPhone, not to, digress too much, but Forbes has a great article from September 18th called iPhone 8 versus iPhone 7. What's the difference? You know, in reading that, some other articles and listening to some podcasts, I really do not think there's a persuasive reason at this time family-wise for us to to yep. make the jump to an X or maybe even an eight. Um, I am struck by how what a religious experience. And, and, you know, I love Apple, right? I just absolutely have loved Apple for a long, long time, but it is, um, you know, obviously we play into the hands of marketers when we <laughs> spend our entire show talking about their products and just, you know, falling over ourselves about how, how amazing they are. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see what's happening, but on a, on a personal basis, you know, I, the iPhone 7 would still be a, a pretty sizable jump forward with processing speed, camera capability, et cetera. So you know we're not making a quick jump but I, I am looking forward to hopefully discounts on the iPhone 7 and with T-Mobile i think i might have mentioned this on the show but we we helped, helped our son well we upgraded for him going back to college and uh T-Mobile had a very nice promo uh where instead of just you know getting a small amount i i'm, I'm thinking that we got 3 or 400 dollars total back on his iPhone uh 6 that he had and so it was just a, yeah. it was a better trade in, um, which I think they were doing in advance of, of the eight and the X, but it's still available, you know, and anyway, that's just, uh, an aside. So that it's a good Forbes article, you know, kind of comparing it. And while the new features are, are exciting, I don't think that any of us need to be compelled to say we have to have, you know, this latest device, especially right. when you look at how expensive it is. Do you want to say a few things about the Google Pixel? Are you, yeah, you waiting do. with bated breath?
0: Um, so, yeah, I'm glad to maybe balance it out. Um, so October 4th, there's going to be a Google event. And I've heard a lot of different uh, uh, rumors about what might be covered in this event. But I think that there seems to be some certainty that first there's going to be updated Pixel phones. That's the Google branded phone that was first released last year, replacing the so-called Nexus phones, which were the Google phones for the previous five years before that. But apparently the Pixel 2 and the Pixel 2 XL, which would be a 5.2-inch-ish phone and then a 5.6 or 7-inch phone, um, with new updates and interesting new things, um, apparently will make, uh, an appearance, um, on October 4th. And I am not in the market for a Pixel phone if for no other reason than, um, I, the latest rumors place the higher end phone, which is the one I'm more likely to go with at $950. And I'm just not in, in the market for a $950 phone. Um, I believe I, I say this every week now, so I might as well just jump in. I am using a, a three year old, Galaxy Note 4 um, on the T-Nobile network that I picked up used, and uh, I'm very happy with it right now, even though it only runs um, uh, Android version 6, which is, uh, I guess, now two years behind the curve. Um uh, uh in regards to operating systems but it's it's good enough especially for the price that i I, I picked this up used um, the pixel phone looks beautiful um I'm assuming that that uh things that people perceived as mistakes in the pixel one phone will be rectified in the pixel two phone and I'm sure it'll be a beautiful competitor but there is a lot of of of, of rumors and thoughts that um uh you know Google could slip in some interesting things that people are not expecting. And there's a good article from uh that that West dropped in from valuewalk.com, another source I haven't really heard of before, um, but uh, pitching surprises. And um, could be dual cameras, um, could be um uh new hardware, mystery hardware things that um are uh, uh haven't been seen before or are brand new or taking on AR or VR. Um, initiatives, um, but a, a lot of people are noting that that there haven't been a lot of leaks about the Pixel phone. There've been vague rumors, unlike the iPhone, which almost all the aspects to it were leaked. And even though people didn't really understand there'd be three phones, uh, Pixel seems to be pretty pretty hidden, which is unusual for Google, which usually is kind of a leaky boat for rumors. Um The other thing I'll also note is that there has been a substantial link related to the new Chromebook pixel, and for those of you unaware of Chrome world um in two thousand and thirteen, Google first introduced the Chromebook Pixel, which is a high end Chromebook uh, that tops out at fifteen hundred dollars. Uh, substantially more expensive than even uh, higher end chromebooks at, at, at the medium level, which tend to top out at five six seven hundred dollars but they released one in two thousand and thirteen they released one in two thousand and fifteen both of those were beautiful hardware devices that had uh, uh, beautiful touch screens high resolution screens um, uh, decent battery life a lot of advantage to it over um, uh even a uh, uh, medium end or high end windows laptop and apparently according to um a leak in the verge today that they're looking at a uh Pixelbook that uh, Pixelbook would be a new name um, for the device. Uh they would start at eleven hundred and ninety-nine dollars would go up to seventeen hundred dollars for a five hundred and twelve gigabyte a uh, Pixel, which, to be honest, I don't know what you would do with that space. I mean, I, every Chromebook I use, uh, with the exception of of, of of one of the high ones, uh, high-end ones that that I utilize sometimes, um, has 16 or 8 gigabytes of storage and it's just fine because it's cloud-based. And so I have no idea what the advantage of a 512 gigabyte Chromebook would be. But the surprise in today's renderings is that there's a Pixel Pen or a Pixel Pencil that's being pitched as a add-on to the Chromebook. It's $99. Of course, people are hand-wringing about that amount, um, which is interesting, because that's about the price of the so-called Apple Pencil. Um, But the bottom line is that um, um, there it is, the Apple Pencil. Um, The bottom line is is that I'm probably not in the market for one, but I love the Pixel uh, Chromebooks. I think they're really beautiful devices. Um, Any interest on your end for a high-end Chromebook, sir?
1: I don't think so. But continuing to to watch with interest and especially on the wireless display, have you found a platform that works well with your Pixel or sorry, not with your Pixel, but just with your Android phones in terms of wireless streaming the same way you can do that with AirPlay?
0: um other than the chromecast no um the chromecast works just fine the problem of course is, is that it doesn't work with enterprise networks it doesn't work easily with enterprise networks it's
1: not networks. manageable with enterprise networks but it also doesn't do a pure mirroring right it's always an yeah. app and then um we've got a chromecast now at the house set up and it does work you know well for 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 you know, throwing video and, and audio and things like that, you know, onto the right. screen, but not for doing a full on, hey, let me do a workshop, you know, show you how to.
0: Right. Yep. The
1: phone. So I would, that'll, that'll probably be the number one thing that, that I would watch for. Um, and I'll mention that in the geek of the week as far as cross platform ability to do that. Um, really fast speed round because we're about at the top of the hour. I've got a section, CRISPR and genomics, uh, Nature Magazine, September 18th. CRISPR reveals genetic master switches behind butterfly and wing patterns. And this is fascinating, right? We've mentioned it on the show before. CRISPR is this uh, sort of Frankenstein, Jurassic Park-empowered tool allowing scientists to snip out parts of the genetic code and then have uh, other kinds of code come in whether that could repair unwanted mutations or to make modifications. And one of the really interesting things about this is it's just less complex than they thought it was. They thought that might be a lot of different genes that accounted for, you know, these butterfly wing patterns, and it turns out it's it's just a couple. Uh, there's a Futurism article, which I guess I still need to put the date on. Geneticists have used CRISPR gene editing to create crops that grow more food um, and – you know, this is again just absolutely fascinating how the continued march of the agricultural revolution. Um, I've told this story before, I think, where, you know, driving into my hometown of Manhattan, Kansas, they've got these signs, you know, one Kansas farmer feeds X number of people. And, you know, that climbed up into the fifties. And this summer when I was going to St. Mary's, Kansas, I I think it was over a hundred, like 130, wow. something like that. And so, you know, this is, this is Star Trek. This is the future of, you know, continued agricultural, uh, productivity. I got a, a tweet back from someone about, you know, how we're continuing commodity prices and things like that are pretty low and, you know, We're still not feeding the world uh, in in healthy ways, you know, comprehensively. But um, there was also an article I think we shared a few weeks ago that was talking about a human embryo study, uh, chemical and engineering news, something I read every day on (laughs) September 18th says doubts raised over validity of CRISPR-edited human embryo study. Um, I think this is a great one to show students, because we need to, you know, critically analyze the sources. We've mentioned tongue-in-cheek, some of these different sources that we haven't heard of, but who's saying that, you know, are they credible? Are other sources saying this as well? And you know, this is a shout out for scientific research, right? This is why we want other PhDs and just, you know, scientific minds um, analyzing studies, seeing what they can replicate, finding out if something is valid or not. And the last thing really does have the classroom connection. This is a, a video. It's about nine minutes long. Are GMOs good or bad genetic engineering and our food? And this is by, I don't know if I can pronounce the name, Krizengat uh, in a nutshell. They, they uh, says something in the, in the byline for their uh, YouTube, like, you know, Quality over quantity. I think they go for one new video per month. But this is a fantastic, well-done video, really breaking down genetic engineering and GMOs just be fantastic as a writing prompt for students. This would be a great you know thing to take a look at you know ethically there's uh, you know public policy implications about this and how things are labeled and, and marketed you know talking about how natural selection and just the ways in which farmers over the centuries have uh, genetically modified plants by you know picking what they wanted to to raise and you know, I think similar things happen with dogs as far as, you know, breeds and things like that. It wasn't CRISPR that, you know, brought about those revolutions. But now we've got the opportunity to make seismic and ginormous you know, changes in the genetic code with these kinds of tools. And I just think this is a, a huge topic to keep talking about. And if you uh, read the wonderful book, Industries of the Future by Alec Ross, he says that one of the three key industries that we need to keep our eyes on and also I think point students to is the area of genomics and, and genetics and, and what can happen and is happening there with regard to medical technology. So your speed round for CRISPR is now over any 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 thoughts
0: um no other than i mean that we've we discussed this in past this is pretty serious stuff, and i I don't feel like i mean it's funny you mentioned what was the name of your publication the um chemical da, 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 and engineering, da, yeah chemical and engineering. yeah chemical and engineering. Uh, also on my magazine uh, stand as well. The, the the hard part about that is is that I just don't feel like there's a lot of, of mainstream science, uh, and not even mainstream science, like like science sections of newspapers and magazines that are taking up these topics in a way It's inspiring the discussion we needed to inspire. And so cool stuff could come from this and will come from this, but it also opens up a whole, you know, kind of scary Frankenstein scenario. And I, I'm, I'm choosing to not panic about it. Um, Because I think that, you know, um, uh, well, the genetic engineering is a good example of this, that scientists are pretty adamant that... That you know, genetic, uh, genetically engineered foods is genetically identical to their non-genetically engineered counterparts. And as you mentioned earlier, Wes, we've been genetically engineering food for quite some time. I mean, the selection of crops as part of uh, 16th and century, 16th and 17th century movements to uh, uh, industrialize and expand agriculture to, to essentially feed the world, which it helps us feed you know, the seven billion people on Earth today. That that's an important part of this process. But there's a lot of stuff here that that it. Feels feels like we're, we're kind of opening Pandora's box, which you may need to happen to help, you know, serve the next 10 billion of, of, of humans. But in the meantime, you know, we, we need to be having broader discussions about this. And I feel like that, you know, uh, in, in a world where science is not getting paid attention to as much as I think it should, we need to be having better discussions about this. And this starts in schools. Right. I mean, that's that's the bottom line.
1: Absolutely. Peggy had to step away for a little bit and uh, had said she wanted to hear the iOS 11 update. So we did talk about those a bit, Peggy. And um, yes, would encourage everyone to, if you have, are not aware, check out the archives that we've got of our shows. You can find that on edtechsr.com where we've got 32 kilobit audio versions as well as video versions archived. And we are a little bit past the top of the hour. Jason, any articles before we geek of the week you want to throw in as a final Mentioned?
0: No, I, I think I'll, I'll I'll hold a couple of these longer discussions the next week. Other than to mention the Emmys were on Sunday and a Hulu show won um, the top drama M- Emmy and Emmy in a number of the acting awards. And it's it's kind of a the bottom line is the, the previous big three, which were ABC, CBS and NBC. The big three now are not the major networks. It's major streaming properties. So Netflix, Hulu and Amazon Prime. Um, and I think that's exciting because I, I think the television um, part of the new renaissance of television that's been happening over the last decade is the availability of new platforms to stream television that might have uh, uh, shows that might have not found an audience before able to find a mass audience or, or a slow gain of audience over time. And I think it's a really great news that we have so many choices available to us in 2017 and the rest of the issues we can talk about later. Sounds good. Well,
1: I think we may need the link for your first Geek of the Week mentioned that, uh, we got the Recode article, but I think there
0: may be a oh, link. That's what, that's what I wanted, actually. So, oh, it is. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, my Geek of the Week is that this is probably more of an amusement than anything else. But uh, Recode uh, noted yesterday, I'm sorry, The Verge. Um, do I have the right article? I do. It's just labeled wrong. Uh, The Verge uh, reported on a study from the University of Nottingham and Kingston University in the UK The researchers created an AI-powered tool that takes a flat image and creates a 3D rendering of a face. And so um, you can upload it to the tools available. Um, You can upload a a flat picture to it. And I've placed um, a video in this week's show notes of my face um, oh, and then look at the face is not, oh, that is so amazingly sad. Um, it, works, I, no, it works, it works, it I'm, works, I'm looking at it now. Oh, like oh, the my face video works? Yeah, yeah, the test works. Oh, okay, great, great, there it is. So, yeah, so I just uploaded my standard headshot uh, to that, and it was able to create a three-dimensional model of my face that, I mean, I don't know what my face looks like in 3D, because I've never seen it in 3D before, but... Um, the bottom line is, is, that that looks like a pretty good representation of that flat or that flat two uh, D model in a three D way, and so it's more of amusement than anything else at this point. But man, is it cool!
1: And I'll I'll say this for anybody who has a chance to do professional development with teachers, and you know, a digital magic trick is oftentimes a welcome a welcome thing. Um, what was the the Microsoft a- AI tool that you had mentioned? Oh, the
0: CNI thing.
1: Yeah, was that it? Um, scene
0: AI, I think, is where it was. Scene called. AI,
1: yeah, that was it. So I, I used that one, and and yet, you know, Jason has provided yet another one. So uh, my geeks <laughs> of the week are basically uh, I mentioned the password alert extension for Google Chrome, um, but two different wireless streaming options. Uh, we are deploying a large number of Apple TVs at our school in conference areas as well as classrooms for teachers who want to be untethered from their wall plate and not have to be, you know forced to sit in a particular spot in the room. And that is wonderful for iOS devices. We've been on a quest. Well, I should say iOS mobile devices like iPhones and iPads and also laptops. Been on a quest for multi-platform tools that will let you know, anyone step into the room with a Windows device, with um, a Chromebook, you know, with an iOS device. And so we had a successful test this week. We've got a very substantial upgrade in our chapel so that we'll be able to live stream as well as archive video stream um, uh, services and uh, speeches. We do a lot of senior speeches in May it's, and, and, that's one of the reasons we want this. So anyway, as part of that, uh, we have a Via Connect Pro, which I have linked in the show notes. It is $800, so that is a, a disadvantage. But it uh, did successfully allow us to take a Windows 10 laptop, a Chromebook with a free Chrome extension, and then just function like an Apple TV as far as uh, showing up in the AirPlay menu and allowing us to select and put in the code. Um, I also – and boy, you're not going to hear me give a shout-out like this to Microsoft very often. So (laughs) this is a rarity. But shout-out to Microsoft. Their new uh, Wireless Display Adapter 2 is working great for two of our users that use Surface Books. The previous version, for some reason, I don't know if this had to do with our environment, it doesn't use wireless or Wi-Fi uh, as far as the the enterprise network. It uses some other kind of technology. But it just constantly dropped and was not reliable. But we've now – Tested and, and utilized two of these and the teacher who's used it the most. Uh, it's been rock solid for her. And so that is really good news. Um, she is, again, running a Surface Book, but that's a $44 device. And, um, you know, we just needed to, to have an HDMI uh, selector basically, so you know, have ch- have choices there, and I'm I'm on a continuing quest for that. So if you have experiences, I, I used a Buick of the week a while back called the Projector, and still haven't gotten that one to to work reliably. We may change our configuration settings for a little bit and give that another shot, um, and also see if they come with updated firmware. Microsoft did say in their store, by the way, that if you have an older display adapter, you can go ahead and update to the newest firmware, and then that may resolve connection connection issues that you've been having. So
0: that's it. Excellent. Well, Wes, where can the internets find you?
1: I am on speedofcreativity.org. I am W Fryer on Twitter, and I will be publishing a podcast soon, which I don't know if I can get tonight, but my, my wife uh did a did a little fun. Scratch Jr., PBS Scratch Junior camp and um In in addition to these regular podcasts on EdTechSR, I am the occasional podcaster on speedofcreativity.org.
0: Excellent. Well... Um, you can find me on Twitter, TechSavvyTeach, where I try to post 10 to 15 links a week of things that I'm reading as part of my regular diet of of technology and education news. And I also blog for the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org, where we released a new website last week um, to help promote uh, NCC's activities uh, really around the world to provide professional development to teachers um, in classrooms. Um, this here is the EdTech Situation Room podcast, where you can join us. Um Usually Wednesday nights, uh, sometimes Tuesday nights, sometimes Thursday nights, maybe a rogue Friday night here or there. And every week you can hear um, me and Wes talk about um, technology, but through an educational lens and, and how uh, this week's tech news might be impacted in classrooms. Uh, you can join us live. Uh, we tweet out when we are live uh, at, at our, our Twitter handle at TechSR. And we are, again, usually Wednesday nights at uh, uh, 9 p.m. Central 8 p.m. Mountain or 2 a.m. UTC, because I actually looked it up this week so I could know what it was. And so uh-huh. if you happen to be in a time zone not covered by Central or Mountain Time, you can always find us um, at 2 o'clock in the morning in in, in Grand Mean time. So um, we hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode. Please join us next week for more educational technology news, and we hope you have a great week. Adios, everyone.